0: On today's episode of Binge, Scott Z. Burns, creator, showrunner of Extrapolations on Apple TV+. Scott, it's great to have you. Welcome to Binge, thanks for the time. Thank you. Um, The first thing that occurs to me in just looking at the project is is the line between this and I guess the inspiration you probably got on Inconvenient Truth, and it does feel like that was the, the genesis of this idea? Um, It certainly
1: hadn't had an impact on me. I I had um, been involved in environmental groups prior to that. Um, When I actually was working in advertising a long time ago, I volunteered and went to Alaska after the Exxon Valdez. And so, you know, I've always been interested in in climate change. but An inconvenient Truth was an incredible opportunity to work with Al Gore and to learn the science behind climate change. And in, in the years since then, I've really thought about what more can I do as a storyteller.
0: And so how long did it take you to string out that, that fictionalization, right? I mean, uh, putting your, your head in the mind of a mom, or, and over multiple time periods, right? Because you're you're looking at different gradients of this process, hopefully, that we never see.
1: Yeah, I um, we started this um, probably about a year before pandemic um, and we built sort of two or three timelines that we overlaid. One kind of dealt with the science of climate change and we, we spoke to a lot of experts about what they thought um, the future held, things as small as when might the, like, the last Pinot Noir grape go extinct. <laughs> to things as large as, you know, um, Thuede's ice shelf breaking off. So we we sort of strung out what the next 50 years of climate change might look like, and I want to underscore might. Um, And then we also looked at it in terms of technology um, and we we kind of combined those things and that's where we started. Um, And then the, the, the fun part, I guess, as a storyteller was to think about what kind of stories might arise out of the coincidence of those those events.
0: That's interesting, so let's, for example, um, a futurist or, or a climatologist gives you a range of outcomes, possible outcomes. Was it, your, was it your leaning to go with the most extreme? How did you decide where in that cone uh, to put your narrative?
1: It's a really great question, and we wanted to shy away from the most extreme, um, in large part because someday we thought we might be asked this question, <laughs> yeah, and, and you and, will. <laughs> um, and we didn't pick the most extreme, um, you know, and that that was also informed by a larger idea, which was a lot of great storytelling has been done around the end of the story, um, and I think. For dramatic purposes, it's easy to understand why a storyteller would go to a very bleak, post-apocalyptic kind of place. But before we get to any kind of end moment, there's a whole whole lot of what we call the messy middle, where people are going to have to make decisions um, about their daily lives that are are more incremental. Um, And we wanted to tell those stories, not just what happens at the end but how what we're doing today can have an impact on what that end might actually be. Uh,
0: The casting is, I've never seen a cast list quite like this. I mean, not in recent years, anyway. I have to, I imagine that this was not a hand, you know, you didn't have to twist many arms. Uh, It seems like they leapt at this.
1: You know, it was incredibly gratifying to have all of these people show up um, to do this. But I think the the interesting thing for people, I think outside of our business to to recognize is all of these people have a lot of choices Um, and they get offered movies and shows every day. And so regardless of, of their own personal passions about climate change, they had to find something on the page that they wanted to inhabit. And, you know, once you get past the I wanna tell a story about climate change part, um, it starts to be like any other work we do. And, you know, me and the other directors have to sit there with the actors and make sure that these are characters that are believable and multidimensional. Um, and so, you know, I think if, if if they were here, they would say, yeah, it feels great to do something that I care about, but it also feels great to play a character that's interesting.
0: Right, I love your line. You said this was not about Apple's resources, uh, getting these people to come on board. But can you talk about the pitch to Apple? Was this always the preferred platform? Um, and I just wonder culturally, uh, what, what led them to, to back this and how, what it was like working for them?
1: Well, a few years ago, I heard Lisa Jackson um, speak and it was right after Lisa had left EPA and had ended and had gone to Apple. And I was really struck by the fact that someone with her, her CV could have probably led any NGO in the world. Um, and she chose instead to go to work for Apple and really put their feet to the fire um, about getting to net zero. And it is part of their culture Um, to think about climate and it is part of their culture to give people tools where they can make changes in their lives and that made me you know hopeful that we would wind up there so um, you know the thing that that also happened was I'm friendly with Adam McKay and I told him that we were gonna likely be at Apple, and Adam has a deal at HBO, and I believe he's developing a climate change show there. And Adam, you know, said something that I wanna echo, which is, there should be 10 of these shows. You know, there's there's 10 cop shows, or 10 lawyer shows. There can be 10 climate change shows, and they should all be different. They can be comedies, they can be dramas, they can look at this you know, from from all sorts of angles. But just like I think I learned the Vietnam War from going to the movies as a kid, you know, we need to teach people about climate change um, by creating content that, you know, positions it is pretty much the, the existential question of our time.
0: Yeah, I think you could even, I mean, I'm thinking back to prior Uh, examples, but look at what Norman Lear did in the 70s when we knew we were in for an elongated period of uh, social tension, right? And racial strife. He made that hilarious.
1: No, and I'm really glad to hear you say exactly that, um, because I invited Norman Lear to our writer's room when I started this project, um, and he came. um, And it was very moving, I think, for all involved to hear that This is a legitimate use of the medium, and and I grew up loving All in the Family, and it is exactly what you just described. Um, It's okay for us to talk about these things in entertainment, because especially with climate change, this isn't isn't a political issue, Um, and we need to put that away now. Um, This should be an issue that people on both sides of the aisle agree on, it is a great opportunity to build new businesses and create new jobs. there There should be nothing controversial about you know about the impacts of green industries um, except for the fact that there are obviously a lot of people who make a lot of money off the status quo. Um, and you know that's happened before in human history where there are sea changes and 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 you know. Look, we just saw it, you know, with the world moving towards technology and digital industries. So it's okay for this to happen.
0: I think you're right. I think, um, you know, you say it's not political. And I I think to a degree, directionally, maybe that's true. We've seen big oil make some big admissions. We've seen parts of the Republican Party come around to this idea of inevitable change. But there will be some element that, I don't know calls this woke, or, or name your pushback. I assume that's something you're bracing for.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, look. I think that's happened to me before. I'm sure it will happen again. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's plenty of evidence that this is a great deal more than that.
0: You've, um, you've talked about uh, your projects not lecturing and at the same time, I know you've pointed to even George Orwell, for example, as an icon of storytelling about the future. How, talk to me about how you work that through your, through your writing.
1: I, I think that there is a historical kind of precedent for this kind of storytelling. There are people who have appeared throughout history who have have spoken up about things in the world that they they wanted to to see change, um, and for me, this this issue is exactly that. I think that we have an obligation to to start telling each other the truth about this, and once we start doing that, then I think change becomes a lot easier to arrive at. And and you know that was really what Orwell was doing.
0: Do you think viewers, because they're faced with um, the prospect of long-term risk to their their daily routine, their daily lives, their daily security, do you think they wanna be told it's gonna be okay? Or do they wanna be confronted with, do they wanna grapple with this stuff along with you?
1: I have two answers. That the first one, you know, my one of one of uh, my partners on the show, Dorothy Fortinberry, always says, "You may not care about climate change, but rest assured, climate change cares about you." Um, and so, it's understandable that someone may want to keep this at arm's length. The other thing I think is something that <clears throat> we all have to realize is a big blind spot for us as human animals. You know, there's a uh, a writer named Justin Gregg, who talks about um, a thing called prognostic myopia, and that human beings don't have a great facility for looking very far out in the future. And that's why we started this show in 2037. We wanted it far enough away to allow, you know, more of this story to unwind, but not so far away that it, it falls beyond the event horizon and people can say, oh, that, that's not going to happen. Um, we have a predilection for that, which which is how we got in trouble. Um, you know, these things are going to affect us, and they're going to affect all of us differently. There are some people whose concerns are, how do I put food on the table for dinner you know, tonight? There are other people with greater resources who can afford to have their event horizon be when their child goes to college. Um, and so I, I think one of, one of the challenges for the viewer is to sort of push past your own prognostic myopia and realize that you're, you know, it's not just Meryl Streep that's in this story, you're, you're in there with her.
0: Right. I, you, you know, you talk about the, the, the time horizon. Uh, you've said that there are no flying cars in my show, but how do you talk about the future without getting sci-fi-ish, right, and, and, and being seduced by the toys that may or may not come, you know, in the future?
1: You know, I, I sort of picked 2037 also because it was about, when I was writing this, the same distance from an inconvenient truth. Um, we've moved on a little bit, so now when I think about how far we are from 2037 and flip it backwards, you know, think about a movie like The Hangover. I don't think anybody looks at that and goes, oh, The Hangover, what a cool period piece. Um, <laughs> it's just a movie. Um, and so, you know, I think when you, when you look at our 2037, a lot of it's gonna look familiar. Um, and again, I think that creates a kind of intimacy about, uh, about where we're at when you, you know, when we were doing our research and we really looked at photographs from, you know, from 2000, um, the only thing that's different kind of is the size of of the cell phone. Um, so, you know, the future can be represented in a lot of different ways. And, uh, you know, when, when you think about science fiction and what a science fiction show is, in, in our minds, a science fiction show is one that pretends that the climate is going to be exactly the same in the future because those people are obviously denying the science and all the evidence we have in front of us.
0: Right, putting the fiction in science fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. I know, I assume you're getting questions from from media that said your contagion call was so prescient during the pandemic, right? Does that inform what you're telling us now? How do you think about that? there's
1: There's a couple of really meaningful differences. you know the the big similarity is, you know, as a writer, I tend to always start with a lot of research, and that was true of contagion. And you know, all of the scientists I spoke to said it's not a matter of if there'll be another pandemic. It's really just a matter of when. Now none of them said it. It will be in seven years. Um, Ian Lipkin at Columbia University, who I worked very closely with, had worked on SARS, which had been about six, seven years before before we had done contagion. And, And Ian did tell me that he thought as humans encroached more on nature, there was going to be a greater likelihood for viruses to jump into the human population. But nobody knew knew when, we just knew that it was going to happen. I think the difference here is we can't look at the amount of science that's now been done around climate change and say, you know, are these things going to happen or not? It's not an if question. They clearly are happening. You know, when we were doing this show, there were you know, more fires than, than had ever been before. There were glaciers breaking off. There, were, there was you know, huge amounts of the human population displaced by, by, by climate irregularities. So this is in progress. What we don't know is what will happen next. Um, and that is different from contagion. And I hope that the fact that that is different is a bit of a, a warning to all of us that we still have agency. You know, I, I think nothing would make me happier than to see the worst parts of what our show suggests not come to pass because we act now.
0: Right. Is there a moment, and maybe it's, maybe it's written into one of the episodes, maybe it's still in your head, where there is a moment of huge clarity for society. You mentioned the Pinot Noir grape. Right. Or maybe it's some city sea level getting to a X, X amount. Do you think there'll be a moment where we all get it?
1: Sadly, I think we now mean so many different things. There probably isn't one moment that's going to resonate for everyone. I think it's going to be a series of different moments that speak to different, you know, different cohorts. Um, And that's unfortunate. And I think that goes to what we see every day on the news as a lack of empathy. I do think that there's a combination of leadership and technology, which is easy for me to imagine, where people find it more comfortable to do things that are going to benefit people, where suddenly, um, instead of bringing new technologies online, becomes attractive and urgent. It's sort of striking to me that we had a Manhattan Project to split the atom um, because of our fear about, you know, what was going on in the world. And yet we don't have a Manhattan Project right now to figure out how to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, That seems like something that it would be great for the government to get involved in, but I'm sure there are private corporations that are doing that. Um, So I think it's gonna be a series of moments um, where people begin to realize that the narrative that oil companies have told us that any sort of change is so massively uncomfortable that it's best not to even contemplate it is gonna get replaced with a different narrative that's filled with possibility.
0: Finally, I hope you won't mind just an industry question. We talk about streaming all the time and the unit economics of streaming and uh, buyer's market, seller's market. Are, are you feeling a shift in that right now uh, in, 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 in what it takes to get a project off the ground or funded or bought?
1: Oh, man. Um, you know what? There are so, there's so many questions inside of that question, including <laughs> the fact that, you know, my, you know, my, I'm part of the Writers Guild, and, you know, we are staring down, you know, the the companies right now yeah. um, and looking at, at the potential of a strike action. And it's, it's because the business is changing so quickly and the streamers have not really come forward with a plan that recognizes how the job of a writer has changed so radically um, over the last few years. And so I think the, the change that I feel is that you know once you get past the part where you're telling stories on the page, um, every aspect of this now feels very different.
0: I mean, I, I remember vaguely the last labor dispute uh, in, in Hollywood writing, but we're now in a period where the need for content is multiples of that right we're no longer talking about can you get a a, a primetime sitcom off off the ground these guys need ammunition in their cannons that must be that must give the guild a huge amount of leverage it's you know
1: i think one would think that's true i've also heard stories that say you know, the streamers are ready to pull back a little bit on what has been, you know, an extraordinary amount of production. Um, and so, you know, I've I've heard stories on both sides. I think what's unfortunate is like a lot of things with, you know, with our business, people tend to posture and posture um, and it causes everybody a lot of anxiety. It's It seems like it's in all of our best interests both those of us who need content and those of us who want work to sit down and figure out an equitable solution um, before, you know, before people like me are, are marching around in a circle with a sign and a stick.
0: Scott, we really appreciate the time. I can't wait to see this, uh, and we'll do our best to let people know about it. But thank you so much today. Great to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much. I'm a, a big fan of, of what you do, so thanks for
0: having me. Please come back. I will. Uh, Scott Z. Burns, a showrunner creator of *Extrapolations* on Apple TV Plus.